Kids Classics. On Kent's Classics this week, I have my interview with Mick Garris for you, the award-winning, multi-talented filmmaker and interviewer himself, having interviewed some of the best and finest that cinema has to offer, from Toby Hooper, Frank Darabont, Billy Friedkin, the late, great Billy Friedkin. It took three years to get a hold of Mick. He was here, there, everywhere, busy interviewing someone or attending a festival or making a movie. But finally, third time's the charm, I was able to finally sit down with Mick. And here it is, for your listening pleasure, me and the mighty Mick Garris. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Boy, that's the credit to you. Way too long. We've got to shorten that IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read there that, that you and your wife were both zombies in Thriller. Did You didn't happen to meet during Thriller, did you? No, actually, we'd known each other before that. We'd been oh. married before that. Oh, okay. But, yes, we, we were both uh, uh, looking about like we look now, 30-some uh, years ago. No, no, no. She, she still looks great. I look like I do in Thriller. <laughs> I thought that would have been such a great love story. Like you both met as zombies on on the making of uh, of Thriller would have been a beautiful story. I'm sorry to disappoint. That's okay. No, it's wonderful anyway. So Mick, um, after after uh, a, a long um, of uh, of you know you're a busy man trying to get to talk to you. Thanks for very much for giving us your time this morning. And going through your numerous credits, uh, the one thing that 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 stands out. With with the podcasting that you do with Postmortem, and also some of your early credits relating to the the makings of certain films like The Thing and such, it's obvious that aside from from you know being a writer, director, and producer, and all the uh, wonderful things that you do, you all you still have maintained you're you're a great fan of film as well. Well, I, I mean that's the motivating factor. You, you either love movies or you don't. And, yeah. Uh, and this, this particular genre, I've been lucky enough, you know, a lot of people consider it a ghetto, and it would be nice to work outside of the genre occasionally, which I've once in a while gotten the chance to do. But it's something I've always loved. I've always been inquisitive, and, you know, even when I was in high school, was doing interviews with musicians uh, that fascinated me, and, and, you know, just discovering the creative process and how different people approach it has always fascinated me. So, mm. yeah, I'm a fan, and, and I'm a curious fan, and, and uh, just uh, I, I love everything about making movies. I mean, I, I only bring it up, and, I, like, I know, like, you know, obviously you don't go into making movies unless you love movies. It's just the fact that, that you know, you, you, I, you know, watch probably like yourself a lot of uh, interviews with the directors and such and some of them don't seem like they're having such a good time some of them don't seem uh, terribly enthusiastic or or seem to have a great enthusiasm for what they do they seem you know kind of 
it's kind of laborious. <laughs> but then again, there there are. It's because, you know, the, the hours are really long or they were uncomfortable talking about it. Uh, but, you know, the people who I've met in, in this business, if if you have any longevity in it at all, um, you you have to love it because the hours are crushing. Uh, a 12-hour day is a relatively short day on a film or television set. Um, and it's a lot of work. So unless, even if you are, even if you're Steven Spielberg or somebody who can do whatever he wants when he wants, the hours are long. You know, it's very demanding. You're on like location away from home for months at a time. If you don't love it, you're a masochist. (laughs) I guess because you've you've you yourself have interviewed uh, quite a number of illustrious filmmakers. Uh, Some sad to say, you know, I was looking your uh, website again the other night and, and listening to some uh, some of your other interviews. Sadly, some of the people you have interviewed have, uh, have passed away since. Is there any filmmakers that uh, that you that you admire that, that are still around or that you may have missed out getting to talk to that you would have liked to? You know, I, I would love to have been able to talk to George Romero. I mean, we were friends, but I never interviewed him. Right. Uh, you know, Toby Hooper were very close friends, and I interviewed him a couple of times. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there, certainly there are plenty of other people that, that I want to talk to. Um, mm. And the podcast is now about to start its second season. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, start, we'll start recording new interviews within the next couple of weeks. But, um, yeah, I, I'm just fascinated by anyone who makes their living as a filmmaker or even different parts of filmmaking, composers, you know, who, uh, who do the soundtracks, or actors, or writers, and the people who have um, a, uh, a list of credits that, that impress us, you know, that you know, people who've made movies that that are lasting, you know, it's the thought process. Directors don't work together, so it's really fascinating to talk to other directors and get insight into how they make their creations. Right, so, yeah, yeah there are a lot of people out there uh, I would love to talk to who I haven't yet and who I will mm. or I won't, but, uh, right. you know, we'll have a bunch of new people. That's cool. So any, any sort of big, uh, big exciting guests that you can uh, let us in on that you're having on post-mortem this season? Well, you know, we haven't recorded any of them oh, okay. yet, and I don't want to get myself in trouble. By okay, all right, okay. There are people who... But, but we, I've had several great people whom I've never uh, interviewed before who have agreed to do the show, right. but we haven't been able to lock them in yet. So until they're recorded, I'm not in Okay. Show. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of the same way. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, you should know. Yeah. You should know the yeah. I'm kind of the same way. Until I've got, like, you know, the thumbs up and... Uh, you know, it's 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 locked in the the diary. I don't sort of uh, brag too much. It's usually after the fact, because <laughs> because uh, sometimes exactly. sometimes you just don't know which way it's going to go. But uh, you're grateful. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of these guys are, are are friends, and it's easy to set up. And some of them are really close friends, and it's not easy to set up. Um, or people like you know, I've interviewed William Friedkin a couple of times once. 30-some years ago, and then again a few years ago on the Postmortem TV show. Uh, he wasn't somebody I knew before, but he was a great interviewer. Yeah. Sometimes 
those are the most revealing because I don't know anything about who they are or how they work and what their process is. And yeah. I learned a lot by, you know, he was a particularly interesting one because he just uh, didn't give a shit. You know, he would say what he wanted to say and, and he was completely open and frank in a, a really compelling and fascinating way. And it's one of my favorite ones. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're my favorite ones too. I mean, often it's a, uh, I guess you've encountered it too, it's kind of a roll of the dice. Some people are very guarded uh, and, and obviously political with their responses. And some just yeah let uh, <laughs> let let uh, come hell or high water they're just gonna say whatever they think and and usually um, they're the I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that you know it's it's uh, it's boring or, or or less interesting the other way around but I'm just saying the the ones that uh, are kind of free with their opinions tend to be the <laughs> the more interesting yeah. Yeah, I I still tend to feel there's a way to be free with your opinion and be circumspect. <laughs> oh yeah, and, yeah, and, and still be still be respectful too. I mean, you can you can say what you want within reason, but uh, you know, as long as you're not uh, being disparaging or or uh, anything like that in, in certain regard. Yeah, and, and Friedkin and John Lance are really wonderfully unfiltered. They're they're really great. Yes, yeah, so, Landis yeah. is a guy. I've known Landis since 1977. Wow, yeah. Uh, and uh, we've been friends since then, and he'll still surprise me. Uh, every time I see him, there'll be something wonderful and surprising come out of his mouth. I've seen your interviews with him. He's He actually was sort of one of the main, the main sort of stars of this, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was an Australian-made documentary called Machete Maidens Unleashed. Um, oh, I love it. Yeah. I think Mark Hartley, I, I, I love what Mark does. Yeah, his documentaries are really, I, not quite Hollywood has, has become very much not just a documentary, but kind of a, uh, a social document almost uh, for Australians. I agree. Mm. It's a great, I think his documentaries are great, and I think his, his version of Patrick is terrific as well. Yeah, because uh, it really, what, what that documentary essentially did was, was, I mean, uh, was responsible in many ways for the re-release of of many of those the films included in that documentary, and and also uh, creating uh, an awareness for that particular era that I think most people had forgotten. Yeah, exactly, and you know, I was aware of some of those movies, but not most of them. As a guy who was born and raised in Los Angeles, mm. so. Um, it was it was exciting for me to see it and uh, and to track down a lot of those movies. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Brian Trenchard Smith is one of the people who was pretty well chronicled in the film, and he and I became friends. And I brought him on as a director on uh, a series that Steven Spielberg uh, secretly produced called The Others. Right. And so Brian and I got to and I I learned a lot about his his resume uh, from uh, from uh, those both of them. Yeah. And of course, you and uh, Brian uh, have, have been regulars on uh, Trailers from Hell too. Yes, yeah, exactly. That was something that Joe Dante created yeah. and turned into quite a wonderful little collection <laughs> of uh, some pretty priceless guruism. Yeah, it is. It is a great little uh, series. I always love checking it out. To talk to talk about you, uh, most people know you because you've done quite a few adaptations of of Stephen King's material. 
from uh, you know sleepwalkers to the stand, uh, quick uh, uh, what is it right riding the Quicksilver Highway, uh, uh, The Shining. Yeah, we've done quite a few. Yeah, I think I think it's up to up to eight. Um, we've will have another the offerings. Yeah. Uh, I remember watching the stand uh, when it was because it was a uh, uh, on on television, uh, and I remember when it came out. It was a great, great series. Those those productions, like for instance, like the stand, the Shining, Bag of Bones. The, are they like? I mean, you've you've directed features. Are they more work than if they seem like they're they're um, are, are, are quite uh, an ele- more elaborate production than just a feature film? Are they? Well, it, the, the feature films I've done have not been huge budget, you know, Marvel-sized feature films. Right. Sleepwalkers was a $15 million movie. Critters 2 was a $4 million movie. But The Stand was the first miniseries I did. Right. And it was, an eight, it, it's four movies, basically, yeah. or eight one-hour TV shows. Right. And that, we spent five months Two months prepping it, five months shooting it, five months in post-production in New York. So I was away from home for a year making that. Wow. Yeah. Now, a lot of people on big movies, they'll spend a year making a big movie, but this was like making four movies in that year, and uh, definitely the hardest I've ever worked. But I've been able to work in high-end television and not-so-high-end feature films, so it's it's hard to compare them because uh, I've not had the luxury of a $200 million budget. Right. It's relatively common mm. in the studio world these days. Yeah. But yeah, they are a lot of work, and especially as someone who, when I got into television, was not a guy who watched a lot of network TV, right. but I loved movies. And I figured there wasn't really a difference between making films and making television other than the schedule and the budget. Right. So television, before the stand, most television was basically done in close-ups and master shots in a very non-cinematic style because people thought, you know, you're watching it on a smaller screen, you need those close-ups. But to me, most people watch, they see most of their movies on television, so what's the difference? So I, I never really bought in into that that formula, and now TV is more cinematic than the movies these days. <clears throat> yeah. It's exciting this, in technology and mm. delivery systems, and, mm. and you know to see Netflix and HBO and all these companies have such an impact on television that it's all become more competitive and more cinematic, and it's kind of exciting. I mean, you're probably the best person to answer this question. Do you feel that Stephen King's material lends itself better to the the miniseries rather than the feature film? Well, it depends. You know, some of them, writing the bullet was a 30-page short story that we turned into a feature film where I added probably at least half of the material making it original. Um... The book, certainly, like The Stand, I mean, that was very well served as a miniseries. Mm. Under the Dome was turned into a regular series as opposed to a miniseries. Right. Um, and I don't know that it sustained all the way through it, but, um, you know, it had the time to tell it. King liked to refer to it when we were making The Stand. He was excited by um, 
novels for television right. as opposed to a miniseries mm. show. And it depends. Stand By Me is such a great film. Misery is such a great film. Mm. Carrie is such a great film. There are tons of great feature films based on King work. Mm. There's shitty King film, and there's great King films. There's shitty TV King, and there's great TV <laughs> King. So yeah. it, it, it really just depends on who's making it. And right. by that, I don't just mean the I mean the format. Is it, is it made for television? Is it made for Netflix? Is it made for, for commercial TV? Is it made for theatrical film? Yeah. And then it comes who, who the elements are. So it's a flip of the coin. Yeah. Did you like it's the hard new... to movie. Sorry. Yeah, go on. Yes, go ahead. Did you like the new... Uh, uh, I was just saying. Did you like the new uh, version of It? Sure, sure. I thought it was great. I, you know, I'm, I'm eager to see where it goes. What yeah. the part two is um, and you know it's a great book and the movie has the feeling even though it's not uh, a blow by blow reproduction of the book uh, it maintains its essence really well mm. and uh, it's definitely a familiar world to me because it is so Stephen King but I thought uh, Muschietti did a really good job with it. You, you uh, did a version of The Shining and I know that, that Stephen King has been it's been publicized that he he wasn't really happy with Kubrick's adaptation. Right. How, how did you feel doing doing uh, a version that was obviously closer to the the source? Well, I was quite naive uh, when I first saw The Shining. It was a couple of days before it came out at a screening at Warner Brothers, and it was the movie I was most looking forward to in my life, and I was resoundingly disappointed. Most people who read the book first were disappointed in the movie. And, and at the time that film came out, it got universally bad reviews. Now, I love it as a Kubrick film, but I don't think it's a good King adaptation. And for many people, maybe even most people, who cares if it's a good King, King adaptation or not if you like the movie. And that's, that's fair. But for me, as such a passionate lover of that book, uh, I was really disappointed. I never knew that years later I would be doing a miniseries version. But King's dissatisfaction with that film uh, led to the miniseries being made when, when The Stand was such a big success. And at the time, it was the most successful miniseries in history. Um, ABC came back to him, our ABC, not the Australian ABC, uh, and said, what do you want to make? And he, he decided, I'd love to do this thing, or The Shining. And uh, so that's how it began. And with great naivete, I said, sure, I'd love to do it. And it was the best script I'd ever read in my life and offered to me. Right. But I... I I got my first inkling of what I was stepping into when I talked to Gary Smith and said, would you like to play Jack Torrance? We're going to be doing a miniseries. And he said, you know, I'd be hesitant to step into Mr. Nicholson's shoes. Hmm. And foolish me, I've never thought of that before. But, um, you know, there were a lot of people who turned it down for that very reason. So... Uh, we just forged ahead and made what we hoped was something special. Mm. Sorry. You're right. Somebody on another line. <laughs> but but um, no, so that's um, 
No, I've always been interested about it because uh, the the ones that you have directed, Stephen King has written the the adaptations of his own his own work. So Most obviously, yeah. obviously yeah. he's he's a, he's as impressive a, a a screenwriter as he is a a novelist. Well, interestingly, you know, he had kind of a, a revelation during the making of The Stand. Now, The Stand was a 460-page script, sure. which can be kind of overwhelming when when you when it's delivered to your home, and, uh, bigger than three phone books. <laughs> um, but during the making of The Stand, you know, I was really, really taking it seriously and committed to making it something that would not disappoint the people who loved the book because it was his most successful book. And during the making of that, he said to me, you know, I never really respected the, um, the screenwriting process as much as, as writing books. I didn't think they were the same thing until the stand where I realized this is respectful. I used to think that it was a, a lesser art to, to write a screenplay was less important to him at that time. But during during the making of The Sand, I think he really had kind of a, a revelation and a transition when it came to his respect for the screenwriting form. And like I said, the next thing we did together was The Shining. Right. And I've never read such a good screenplay. So um, another, another great series that you were a part of that I was a, a, a massive fan of when it was on was uh, Amazing Stories. How did you come to... Uh, ah to work on Amazing Stories? Amazing Stories was my first uh, real job as a screenwriter. I had been hired to write a script once before, but nothing ever became of it. So uh, I was doing uh, an interview show uh, on a local pay TV channel before there was an HBO or Showtime in Los Angeles. And I managed to get Steven Spielberg as a guest. And so then I, after that, I was doing, I got a job doing special genre publicity at Universal the year they were making The Thing and E.T. and uh, American Werewolf in London and Videodrome 81-82. And uh, Stephen remembered me from the Z Channel show that I, I did. That interview, by the way, is on the Mick Garrett uh, com website with a bunch of the other TV things we've done. And... Uh, so I was making, I was hired to do the making of the Goonies documentary, and we were on location up in Oregon, and um, it was the first day of shooting, and I was setting up to, to interview Stephen, and he said, you know, you must do a lot of these uh, making of documentaries, and I, I had done a few, and I said, I can't believe I said this, but because I had known him for several years off and on, I said, yeah, I, I, I am, but I'm trying to put all of my concentration into, into my writing. Oh, you're a writer? Yeah, yeah. I've uh, been working on that for years. And he said, well, you know, we're looking for writers for this new TV series called Amazing Stories. And uh, my agent had submitted a sample of my work to them. And I said, yeah, I, I, I just heard about that. And uh, I hear that your people are, are reading something of mine. So it turned out later that they really liked the script they'd read. And Kathy Kennedy called me and asked me if I would come in and meet with Stephen. And, and, uh, and then Stephen called and said he wanted to talk and wanted me to write 
an episode for this new show, and I found out years later that I was the first one he asked to write one. So oh, yeah. I, I spent three days writing. Wow. Spent three days writing it, turned it in, and they really liked it and asked me to do another one right away. So a day and a half into the writing, Stephen called me again and said they would like to offer me a full-time job as the story editor on the series. Wow. So it was like, holy shit. <laughs> and I was on food stamps at the time, welfare at the time, and right. not being able to make meat, trying to make a go of it as a writer or doing publicity or making up documentaries and things. Yeah. And that—that's how that happened, and it changed my life, and I've been yeah. working ever since. Well, because it was a—that was a fantastic series, and and um, oh, thank you. it was just yeah, it was up and down. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, there yeah, was some great ones. There were yeah, there was some there was some it really was good ones. Yeah, there were some really great ones, and you know, some you know, like you say, sort of mediocre. But yeah, there, there, there hasn't really been anything like that since that that type. Well, not of that book. You know, the, the anthology certainly has had a lot of exercise uh, over the years, but never where you'd get an animated one one day, you'd get a family fantasy comedy one week, and then the next week would be, you know, a serial killer thriller, and it just was all over the place. And, and now Apple is, is making a reboot of Amazing Stories. Well, yeah. Brian Fuller running. Yeah. So, I'm uh, that with luck maybe we'll uh, end up. I would love to be able to do one for them. That'd be so, that'd be great. We'll yeah, get some of the get some of the original the, uh, the original writers back. Yeah, uh, Critters Two Critters Two is one of my um, one of my favorite movies. Uh, <laughs> I I was I was very curious where where they would go after the first one. The sec the second one is is um, just what you'd expect. It's 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 uh, it's critters, but it's a it's a whole lot of fun. One of my favorite lines uh, in movies ever comes from Critters too, and that's uh, the line you know about the cheeseburgers, no bones. <laughs> how he gets yeah. uh, how he gets him to lure you know to lure the other ones uh, back. Um, can you tell me about the Can you tell me uh, the good oil on on uh, on Critters too? Like well, how you how you came to it? It it was. My first feature film as a director, I had been working for Steven Spielberg as a writer primarily, and then I had directed one of the episodes of Amazing Stories. But um, there were a lot of things coming in uh, for me to potentially direct um, or to meet on that were, you know, lots of visual effects and stunts and all these things, and I thought, God, this is kind of overwhelming. Am I ready for this? And uh, they were not greenlit movies. They were just, if we make this, would you be interested? And you go through that kind of dance for a while. But they actually came to me with that and said, we're going to make this. We want you to direct it. You can rewrite it however you like. Do you want to? And so it was my first real greenlit offer on the table as a director after I had directed an episode of Amazing Story. And so... Um, I went for it, and of course, it was visual effects, it was kids, it was stunts, it was uh, <laughs> big cast, Asian work, and all in for $4 million. So it was a very difficult but really fun movie to make. It happened during the coldest winter in 100 years in 
Southern California. Wow. And so, you know, the scene where uh, where the bounty hunter turns into the beautiful Playboy Playmate, where she's stomping naked through the field, yeah. it was 22 degrees. Wow. 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Goodness. So that must have been, what's that, minus five or something. Yeah. Well, and, uh, all, yeah, it was, all, it was, a, it was a great experience. Yeah. I was, uh, I was allowed to, to rewrite it uh, the way I liked. David Tui had written a really good script that was kind of an old-fashioned Western. Right. With a sense of humor and with furry furballs with big teeth and a big appetite. And it had a lot of humor, and to this day, it's one of only two comedies I've ever made. So, yeah. uh, and it, this is its 30th anniversary, by the way, 1988. Yeah, I know. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, well um, all, all credit to that actress, then, for uh, for that day, for, for putting a brave yeah. face on it. <laughs> Roxanne Kernahan was her name, and she was great, and several years later, she unfortunately passed away in a car accident. Yeah, no, that's terrible. But um, yeah, 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 that's it's a it's a, it's a marvelous film. I, I I don't know. I love the blend of of sort of comedy and horror. I think it's a <laughs> you know. I, I think it's I think it's something that's it, it, when it's done right, it's done. It, when it's done right, it's really good. And when it's done badly, it's it's not too bad either. Um, <laughs> You know. <laughs> well, comedy horror is a hard it's a hard balance to make. And so many of them, you know, horror comedies that aren't funny or scary, and uh, it, it's a tough it's a tough tightrope to walk. But we had a bunch of great people involved in that. You know, the director of photography, Russell Carpenter, went on to win the Oscar for Titanic. Yeah. Um, you know, Barry, Barry Corbin as the sheriff was amazing. And, mm did such great work in Middle Country for Old Men, things like that. Lynn Shea, of course, and the Kyoto Brothers and their creatures, the critters themselves, yeah. all of that stuff. We, we really had a, a great team. Mm. And also also your uh, your co-writer, David Tui, he went on to do some uh, some uh, some pretty oh, yeah. cool stuff as well. I like his, uh, his science fiction movies. Uh, Riddick movies aren't too bad. Yeah, no, he did a bunch of really good stuff as writer and director. Yeah. So uh, we didn't, we never actually got to work together. He oh, okay. The first draft. All oh, right, okay, right. And so then we'll, yeah. So he so usually here's how you can tell when you're looking in the credits. If there's an ampersand between the names, it means they worked as a team. Oh, okay. If and it's spelled. If and is spelled out between the names, it means they weren't separate. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, okay. So he. Here's your um, Hollywood. All right. Okay. So he had he had already turned in a script, and then and then you uh, came on after the fact. Exactly. All right. So you got to uh, there was critters too. You you also did another sequel to a, a successful horror film, which was The Fly too, as well. Yeah, that was. Um I was mostly a screenwriter at that time. Right. And uh, so Fly 2 came about, you know, I was a huge fan of David Cronenberg's film and had done, I'd worked with David and known David. I did publicity on the scanners and did the making of Videodrome and, and some other things. And uh, it came along and, and David was one of the people who recommended me for the sequel. And uh, it turned out 
that, uh, that it worked out. I was hired to do it. I had a, an original concept that they quickly threw out and said they wanted to make a teenage, a teenage monster movie. So um, I was in the middle of reworking that, and I'd done two or three drafts, and it was very frustrating when the offer to do Critters 2 came to direct my first movie. And so after I finished up my obligations on, on that, because there were fights between the head of the studio and the and Scott Rudin, who was the the studio executive assigned to the film, they had a new head of the studio, Leonard Goldberg, and they did not agree at all on what the movie was they were going to make. So it was good timing for me to get the offer to do Critters too. Well, yeah, I'm here. Well, yeah, right. no, that, that was, sorry. Uh, yeah, that 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 time is when I left to do Critters too. Oh, okay. Right. There and they wanted to turn it into a teenage monster movie, and right. not really the kind of movie I was looking to do. It oh, okay. So I moved. Yeah. 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 I, I have to say, uh, of the of the fly too, I haven't lost my lunch over many films, uh, but that was one of the one of the yeah. mo- one of the movies I did. Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, my lunch came back on me, and it was not one of the particular. <laughs> It was one. It was not one of the particular gory moments. It was just the moment when it's at the end when he he goes through the the pods and and is and is turned back into a human form and he's covered in he's covered in like the the the, the goo and she she kind of just she doesn't really wipe it away. Daphne Zaniga doesn't wipe it away to kiss him and she just kind of like plants one on him and he's covered in like this stuff. And I just, I just, man, I just, I don't know what it was about that that just, I was like, oh, God, you could have wiped his face or something. And I just went, oh, and, yeah, got up and excused myself. And, yeah, I thought, oh. yeah, I could have, like, oh, she could have just wiped his face or something with her shirt or, because. <laughs> uh, uh, well, give all the credit, give all the credit to Chris Whalen, the director on that. He was the makeup effects guy on the fly. And uh, then became the director on the sequel. Yeah, because it was. Um, oh, yeah. I just yeah. I have vivid recollections of. That. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> I know it's not your fault. But. Um, okay, I'm. I'm not really sorry at all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another another film that you uh, did some writing on, and and I'd be remiss not to talk because I know that my wife uh, really enjoys the film is uh, Hocus Pocus. Uh, everybody's wife seems to love Hocus Pocus. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it, it's interesting what a, a a great female following it has. I'm sure because it's got such a strong female cast. Right. But um, that was something that came up while I was working. Uh, on Amazing Stories. Uh, producer had the idea for the movie, his name was David Kirshner, and he had, he, he was a really talented artist and um, also created the Chucky movies and um, An American Tale, the animated uh, movie that Steven Spielberg produced. Right. So me working for Spielberg and him hoping to make this a Spielberg production he brought me on board to be the first writer on it. And then uh, we pitched it to Steven Spielberg together. And Spielberg, once he found out Disney was involved, uh, at that time, Amblin and Disney were were deep competitors. 
So uh, it was like, oh, no, we're not going to do it. If Disney's going to do it. You don't need us. So, uh, but I was the first writer on that, and it was much darker when I was working on it. Okay. Not quite as as funny. Um, the biggest change that was made, there were uh, another 11 writers on it after me. It got made eight years after I wrote my versions. Mm. But uh, I basically wrote it about 12-year-olds, and they made a movie about 16-year-olds. But structurally and everything else, it's pretty very similar to what I did. Right. So, uh, but uh, a, little, a little funnier and a little more teenage. Okay. But, <laughs> so, a lot of changes uh, take place behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. As, as, a, as a director that's primarily as associated with the horror genre, having sort of come through the, uh, you know, the, the, the 80s and, and 90s, how do you feel about the, the modern wave of, of horror films? Well, I, I think it's great because I think there's more variety to it than ever. The studios still see them as teenage movies, but all around the world and in the independent world, uh, it seems they realize that the, the best genre films are made for adults and not made to be franchises. You know, there's, there's a great history of Australian horror films, um, European, uh, South Korea and Spain are particularly great. And one of the things about having had a career in this genre is that I've been invited to a lot of festivals around the world and I get exposed to movies that I wouldn't otherwise see in a multiplex in LA. So I, I think it's incredibly exciting that uh, people are bringing new ideas to movies and not just doing the same old, same old. That it's, it's not Friday the 13th, part 37. Um, but, you know, there, there are, are a lot of visionaries working in the field and, and I love to see that and I, I think it's the genre that is the most cinematically exciting of all mm. uh, you know you can it needs to be good drama to work first of all and then on top of that it needs to touch a place in you that affects you in a very visceral sense yeah. fear anxiety you know those things you know it, it's easy to make a movie that's just throwing splat up on the screen Mm. But to disturb the audience in a way that you take home with you after the credits roll, that's that's pretty amazing. And, and you can only really do that if there's good drama at the center of it. If you've got characters in an involving story that you can believe and identify with, mm. then you're way ahead of the game. And I think it's happening more than ever right now. Mm. And uh, it's been exciting to be making films. Mm. Not a very profitable time for an independent filmmaker with, because <laughs> of the way films are distributed now. It's, it's really difficult for somebody to, to actually make a living making uh, genre films, yeah. independent genre films. You can make them for next to nothing, but that's what they're worth in the, in the world of online distribution. So yeah. it, it, it's a rough rough road at home. Yeah, no, the game is... Uh the game is changing and, and uh, ever evolving, but no, I, I yeah, I, I I agree with you as far as what you were saying about about horror. I think it, I think it's really prevalent of any genre, and I think it's something that's uh, lacking a little bit in in some modern films. Is um, you know a compelling plot and characters aside from just spectacle. 
you know, once it was one set of, of, of King's work that, and, and, and I firmly believe it, that he is uh, one of the best writers of, of characterization that there is. And really, you, 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 you get to fully assimilate with these characters, and then he, uh, he brings in the, uh, whether it be a supernatural element or the, or the horror element. And, uh, Absolutely. No, yeah. I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. He, first of all, tells a ripping story, yeah. but sets it in a world that we all live in and that we're all familiar with and that we mm. know. And that's, that's his strength is his voice. And, uh, you know, uh, I will uh, never cease my admiration for his talents. Yeah. And he's an amazing being as well as an amazing artist. Yeah. That's something that's kind of lost. I mean, you, you go to the cinema uh, lately and you watch these um, very visually impressive films, but where they come up short, I feel, is in the areas of of plot and character because you really, when stuff starts to happen to the characters, you really, there's really nothing that you, you're in, no one you're invested in uh, because they're not really well drawn. They're kind of just cardboard cutouts of a sort. Yeah, well, sort of the big studio movies uh, these days are more like a, a, a video game or a theme park ride than they are uh, a story. Yes. And uh, it's, it's about the spectacle. And I understand that. You want to pull people out of their homes with a, uh, <clears throat> you know, with something that is an event that you go to the cinema to see and you'll pay the cinema prices to see and it's in 3D and all that. But, um, you know, I'd, I'd much rather just see something captivating with people, with characters that are like, wow, this is an interesting take. I totally believe who these people are. Mm. I knew a guy like that. Mm. But, but then with ideas, I want people to have better ideas than me and think of things that I wouldn't think of. So I'm watching a movie and these outrageous things happen, but I totally accept them happening because they're crafted so well. Yeah, but in the, uh, in the absence of that, you can just be like me and, and hang out at home and watch uh, Critters 2 with a bowl of popcorn and have a really good time. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Mick, look, I've, you've uh, been very generous with your time this morning or this afternoon where you are. It has been absol yeah. an absolute pleasure to finally get to chat with you. We've, we've come close several times over the length, but we've, we've finally got there. It's been a real treat from one podcaster to another. I'm looking forward to the uh, the new series of Postmortem and everything else that you've got going. You're a very busy man. I know you've got a lot of fingers in a lot of pies. I can't wait to taste uh, a slice of each of them. Uh, Mick Garris, thank you. Well, sure. all right. Thank you, Kent. Great talking. And keep up all the good work. Eh? We'll try. Take care. All right, mate. Cheers. Thank you.